So Revelation chapter 2, we will be looking at verses 18 through 29 as we uh, finish off chapter 2, looking at this, the fourth of the seven letters to the seven churches. This is to the church in Thyatira. So starting in verse 18, Jesus tells John to write, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So last time, which would have been three weeks ago, three weeks ago, we looked at the third of the seven letters to the churches in Asia found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Well, anyway, that third letter to the church in Pergamos, which you see in verses 12 through 17, in that letter we saw that Pergamos was the compromised church. It was uh, Jesus uh, reveals himself to that church as he who has the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. And he comes to them saying that he knows their works. He knows how they were steadfast in the face of persecution because they dwelt where Satan's house was or where Satan's throne is. So this is a church that was facing severe persecution and stood fast and held fast to the faith. And they were faithful and they, they, were, they persevered under very harsh persecution because they were in a place where it was, as you know, Jesus says here, where Satan's throne is. So it was like the height of emperor worship in Pergamos and they were facing severe persecution for their faith. But like many of the churches in this cycle of letters, uh, Pergamos had a fatal flaw. They had a problem. They had something that was going to cause them to cease being a church. And in in the case of Pergamos, they tolerated two types of false teaching. They they tolerated the teaching of what is called the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So because they couldn't be beaten to death by being persecuted, Satan uses another tactic, which is to sneak false teaching in through the back door, which is what happens at Pergamos. They, they stood fast in the face of persecution, but allowed false teaching into the church. These two false doctrines, the doctrines of Balaam and the, and the Nicolaitans. 
And despite the best efforts of Satan to beat the church into submission through persecution, instead he goes to the back door of doctrinal compromise. So Jesus commands the church to repent. He says, repent, or he will fight against them with the sword that comes out of his mouth. So again, these images that Jesus uses at the beginning of each letter are very pertinent to what is going on in that letter. And in this case, the word, the sword that comes out of his mouth is the word of God, which is used in, in a sense, in this case, as a word of judgment. So as they were allowing false teaching in, that word now, the true word, would come out and judge them for their false teaching, for allowing that into their church. And it's a very chilling image to see that unless the church repents of its doctrinal compromise, Jesus is going to fight against them. Jesus fights normally against his enemies, but here he's going to fight against a church that allowed false teaching into its midst, and the sword of his mouth will cut against them. But as always, to those who overcome, to those who conquer, uh, there is a promise. And in this case, in the church of Pergamos, there was a threefold promise, if you recall. He was going to give them some of the hidden manna to eat, which we said is really just an image of Jesus himself, who proclaims himself to be the bread of life, just as the manna, as the, as the fathers received the manna in the wilderness. Jesus is that bread that comes down from heaven and feeds his people. He was also going to give to the overcomer a white stone, which we said speaks of three things. And we said, why not have all three? So it speaks of victory that you would receive a white stone victory in, in the games. Uh, it was also the, the stone of acceptance. If you were invited to a very special gathering, you would give, be given a white stone to allow you entrance into the party. But it was also the white stone of acquittal. So if you had received a verdict of innocence or non-guilty, you were given a white stone as a, as a vote of innocence. So he gives them the hidden, hidden manna, the white stone, and thirdly, he gives them a new name. So now as we come to the letter to the church in Thyatira, we come to what is not only kind of like the center hinge of these seven letters. So you got three before, you're going to have three after it. So the Thyatira letter is the the middle letter, if you will, but it's also the longest of the seven letters. Now, just a little bit about Thyatira itself as a city. Uh, Thyatira was about 40 to 50 miles east of Pergamos. So if you remember from the map from three weeks ago, you start in Ephesus, which is in the southwest corner of Asia Minor, right on the Aegean Sea. You go up, you hit uh, Smyrna, you go north of that, you hit Pergamus. Now you're starting to go east, you'll hit uh, Thyatira. Uh, Thyatira itself was not a major city. It was not an important city like Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamus. And unlike Smyrna and Pergamus, there, but unlike, I should say, unlike Smyrna and Pergamus, there is a mention of Thyatira outside of the book of Revelation. So we know of the church of Ephesus. It's mentioned in Acts. We also know there's a letter written to the church of Ephesus. We have no other mention in the Bible of Smyrna or Pergamos, but there is one brief mention of the church of Thyatira in the book of Acts. And it's in Acts 16. I kind of alluded a little bit to this uh, this morning in our Romans discussion. But in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are about to go on the second missionary journey. And as they're going... They were about to go in, so they start off in Antioch, which is in Syria. So think of where Jerusalem is, 
and about due north is Syria where Antioch is, and that's their station. And then from there, they want to go into Asia, which in, that, in those days, Asia basically is Asia Minor. So they want to go into Asia, but we're told in Acts 16 that the Holy Spirit had forbidden them to go into, excuse me, to go into Asia and forbidden them to speak the word in Asia. And then they wanted to go into Bithynia, which is another region in that, in that area. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not permit them to go there. So then Paul and Silas go, they take up camp in the city of Troas. And in that, at night, Paul receives a vision. He receives a vision while he's in Troas of a man from Macedonia who's beckoning Paul, come to Macedonia and preach the word here. So they go to Macedonia and they go to the city of Philippi, which is a major, major city in Macedonia. It's a Roman colony. It's a very important city. And there Paul meets in Acts 16, 14, he meets a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. And that's the only other mention of Thyatira outside of Revelation in the Bible. But there is, there's this little tidbit of information is relevant for Thyatira because Thyatira, while it wasn't an important city as in like it wasn't a, an area of politics or an area of culture, it was a city, a major city for, for the trades, for, for the guilds and things like that. It was a major guild city. So under the stability that was provided by the Roman Empire, a large number of trade guilds were able to flourish in the city of Thyatira. So Thyatira became a center for manufacturing and marketing. And among the many trade guilds that were centered in Thyatira were they had wool workers, linen workers, they had people who made clothes, they had workers who worked with colored dye, which is where you get Lydia who worked with purple dye and things like that. They had leather workers and tanners. They had potters and bakers and butchers and bakers and candlestick makers and people who worked in bronze and all kinds of, of people that worked there. It was a major guild city. Now, what makes all of this relevant to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 19, is that each of these guilds that they had there were sort of inseparably intertwined with the fall, with the local religious observances in that city. Now, of course, like any of the other cities in Asia Minor, they worshiped the Greco-Roman gods in Thyatira. So they had many uh, temples and, and religious cults there. Primarily, they had cults and, and temples to the god Apollo and the god Artemis. But these guilds and entrance into these guilds and membership in these guilds and the ability to conduct business with these trade guilds involved you having to be a participant in these religious festivals for whatever god the guild worshipped. So you can imagine the, the kind of problems this might present to a Christian who is trying to live a holy life, a life separate from the world, a life honoring and pleasing to God when they're trying to do business in Thyatira and the only way to do business in Thyatira is to observe these false religious uh, rituals. And that's the problem we're going to get here when we get to this letter, which we're going to get to right now. So the letter to the church in Thyatira, the corrupt church. 
So following the pattern of the other three letters, Jesus here, again, as he does in all the others, commands John to write to the angel of the church in Thyatira in verse 18, where he says, And to the angel in the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like the flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. As we've been noting, as we've been going along here, as he does in every letter, Jesus introduces himself to this church using imagery that he has pulled from chapter 1 in that vision that he gives to John of the exalted Christ. And here we see Jesus identify himself as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. And when we looked at that, we said that these are the eyes that penetrate. These are the eyes that get to the heart of the matter. These are the eyes that give Jesus sort of that you know, perfect discernment. So they penetrate the all-knowing glare of Christ. His eyes see to the very core of every issue. And also he has the feet like fine brass, or as other translations say, feet like burnished bronze, which suggests the power and majesty of Christ to judge his enemies and, as we said, crush them under his brass or bronze feet. All the better to stomp your enemies to tiny little bits. <laughs> now also, Jesus here refers to himself as the Son of God. Now, in and of itself, that's not unusual. I mean, we know and acknowledge Jesus to be the Son of God. And John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote the fourth gospel. That's a, an important gospel on teaching that Jesus is the Son of God. But here in Revelation... This is the only time Jesus refers to himself as the Son of God in the entire book of Revelation, which is kind of interesting. And as I said, interesting considering that John wrote the fourth gospel, which one of its main concerns was to get readers to believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Now we know that the Son of God, or the only begotten Son of God, speaks of Jesus' deity. As the Son of God, he is the unique the only, the only begotten Son of God. So he is the only one who is uniquely the Son of God. Now we are sons and daughters of God through adoption. But he is the Son of God by, to use a theological term, sort of eternal begottenness or eternal generation of the Son from the Father. So he is the only one who can be properly called the Son of God who is equal in essence to God the Father as the second person of the Trinity. Now, there's another reason why he might be referring to himself as the Son of God, which we'll see in a little bit, uh, because later on in this letter, in verses 26 and 27, there is a, a citation from Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. I'll read it here now, but we'll look at it again a little bit later. But in Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that's a messianic psalm, if you're, if you're aware of that or if you're familiar with that psalm. And it's the one where the enemies of God are aligned against God and they gather together and they rage and they shake their fist at God. And it says, the psalmist says that God looks at them and kind of laughs at them like, oh, you, you, know, you foolish little <laughs> mortals, why are you raging against me? And then he says in verse 8, Ask of me and I will give to you, that is to the Son, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Which if you look at verses 26 and 27 here in Revelation 2, you'll see the language is very similar. 
Now, just one verse earlier in that psalm, we read in verse 7 where the father says, I will, de- I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there is that declaration that Jesus, or at least this, in this case, the pre-incarnate son of God, has been declared the son of God. Not that he has become the son of God, but he has been declared the son of God for the purposes of of receiving the nations as an inheritance. And he will rule these nations with a rod of iron. And all, like I said, all of these illusions are picked up a little bit later in this letter. But that's how Jesus introduces himself to the church in Thyatira. He is the son of God. He is the one with the eyes like a flame of fire. And he's the one who has feet like fine brass or burnished bronze. As we look at verse 19 now, as most of these letters, after introducing himself, Jesus makes a commendation to the church. He tells the church what they are doing good. And in this case, in verse 19, he says, and it's always prefaced with these words, I know your works. Again, Jesus, omniscient, eyes of flaming fire. He's the one who walks amongst the lampstands. Of course, he knows the works of his church. He is the high priest, the great high priest, who is tending to these Lampstands, like the priest would in the tabernacle. So he is the one tending the lampstand, so he knows what's going on in the church. He has an intimate knowledge of all of the churches. So he says, I know your works, Thyatira. I know your love, your service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So with this perfect knowledge, Jesus knows their works, and he knows their works of love, service, faith, and patience. Now here, love and faith can sort of be seen as the root. These are the root works out of which service and patience are the fruit. So love and faith are the fruit, the root, and service and patience are the fruit. So here, love is seen as in service towards others. So their, their love the love that they have is seen in that they have service towards others. And their faith is seen as they patiently endure the trials and tribulations that all churches go through. So where there, love, so where there is love, there will be service. And where, there, where faith flourishes, there God's people will patiently endure. Now it's interesting because Thyatira here is commended for their love. If you remember several weeks ago when we looked at Ephesus, what was their problem? They they lost, they left their first love, yeah. So Ephesus had a lot of good things going for it, but they, they had left their first love. Here, Thyatira is commended for their love. So whereas Ephesus had left their first love, Thyatira had love that blossomed into service. And whereas Pergamus allowed false teaching to infiltrate the church, Thyatira preserved the faith. And of course, like Smyrna, Thyatira endured patiently. So they have a lot of good qualities, a lot of good qualities that you see in some of the other churches. And moreover, Jesus says that these works for which Thyatira is being praised are growing. They are growing. He says the last are greater than the first, or the last are more than the first. 
So they were a loving and faithful church, and that love and faith was becoming more and more evident in their lives and seen in increasing service and increasing patience. And again, as we say, you know, when we look through all these commendations, these are real commendations by Jesus to the church, and we should look at these and say, would that our church would be like this? Would that our church be a church that grows in love, that grows in its faith, that, that, that love then works itself out in service to neighbor and to the community, and that, that faith produces an endurance that, that, that perfectly and, and preservedly endures throughout all kinds of persecution that we may face in our lives. And even though we know the rebuke is coming, right? First the carrot, <laughs> and then the stick comes later. And even though we know the rebuke is coming, it's nice to see how Jesus can still point out the good that a church is doing. This isn't some phony compliment to help the rebuke go down a little easier. It's like, well, you guys are okay here, but now, you know, you know what they say when you, you, you say a long list of things and in the middle you've got the word but? They, what do they say about everything that you say before the but? You can just kind of ignore that, right? Because it's after the but that really matters. Well, and Jesus does that here. You're doing all these good things, but, but he's not ignoring the good things. That's what, what's going on here. He's not ignoring those good things. This is an infallible and inerrant commendation by the king and high priest of the church commending his servants for a job well done. And it's helpful for us to know that just as with these seven churches, which we have said in the past, the seven churches represent the totality of, of the church throughout all ages, and so too with individual Christians. We're all a mixture of good and bad, right? And even though the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us and is sanctifying us, we still fall far short of that perfection that God requires of us. He says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Be thou holy as I am holy. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And despite this failure of perfection on our parts, Christians are still capable of performing some actual good for which Jesus will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In verse 20, though, after having given them the good news, Jesus now is going to hit them with the bad news. Where he says in verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So the fatal flaw in Thyatira was that they allowed a false prophetess into their midst who brought corruption into the church. Not doctrinal corruption so much as moral and ethical corruption. Um, Pergamus's problem was that they allowed doctrinal corruption and they, they allowed false teaching in. Thyatira's problem is they allowed moral and ethical corruption into the church. Now, like we looked at last time, this prophetess, of course, here, this prophetess, prophetess is called that woman Jezebel. And like in the letter to Pergamus, where they had succumbed to the doctrine of Balaam, we shouldn't think that this false prophetess was actually named Jezebel. Just like the doctrine of Balaam wasn't literally the doctrine of Balaam, it's Jesus is using these terms from the Old Testament to suggest what the teaching was that was in Pergamos was like the doctrine of Balaam. 
And here in Thyatira, this prophetess that has infiltrated her way into the church at Thyatira is like that woman Jezebel, to the point that we were going to call her Jezebel. So that name Jezebel is meant to draw our attention to the Old Testament and to the real Jezebel. But Jezebel, if you're aware, well, let me, I'll just ask this question. Who here knows who Jezebel is? I mean, it's a popular name, but who knows who she is actually? Yeah, she was the wife of Ahab. And she worshipped Baal, I believe. Yeah, Baal and uh, the Asherahs, or the Ashtaroths, yeah. So Jezebel was the wife of Israel's most evil king, Ahab. So keep your finger in Revelation 2, and let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. Now, just as a little background, by this time, by the time of Ahab, the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel has split into north and south. That happens after Solomon. So you had Saul was the first king. David succeeded Solomon or Saul, and he uh, united the kingdom after the, the kingdom sort of split a little bit after Saul. And then he had like 33 years of peace and prosperity. And then his son Solomon succeeds. He has another 40 years of peace and prosperity and then when Solomon dies and he gives the kingdom to his son, Rehoboam, Rehoboam basically does not listen to his father's wise counsel and the kingdom splits. And then you have the northern kingdom, which is basically the, you know, the other tribes of Israel outside of Judah and Benjamin. So Judah and Benjamin form the southern kingdom of Judah. Everybody else is in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, unlike the southern kingdom, which... You have ups and downs with their kings. You have some good kings, some bad, mostly bad kings, but there are a few good kings and some really good kings in, in Judah. Israel, it's all bad. It starts bad from the, the, the beginning and it gets worse and worse and worse. And when you get to Ahab, he's the worst of the worst. Okay, I mean, he is sort of like he wins the prize for the worst king in Israel. And here in 1 Kings chapter 16, starting in verse 29, this is how, uh, you know, the kings, basically the book of kings works like a chronicle. It's just telling you the story of the kings. And when a certain king comes up, it'll say he was the father, you know, his father was so-and-so. He reigned for so many years, and this is what he did. So starting in verse 29, it says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, he held the, Beth, the Bethelite, built Jericho. He laid its foundation with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Saguv, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So here you've got good old Ahab, and he comes along now. The first king of the northern, or the, yeah, the northern kingdom was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam kind of sets the stage for evil kings. 
And every other king is like, this guy walked in the ways of Jeroboam. You know, so he's sort of like the pattern for evil. Now when Ahab comes, he smashes the pattern. And he says he was more evil than all of the kings that were before him. So no more are they calling, well, he walked in the ways of Jeroboam because Ahab comes and he is the worst of the worst. And more so, it says here that he did more to provoke the Lord than any other king before him. So you've got Ahab here. He does all these things. So during this time of the divided kingdom, Israel began to sort of drift away from the Lord very quickly. And that, that drift was accelerated during the reign of Ahab and Jezebel. And so wicked were this king and queen that here we see the institution of the prophetic office as God's covenant prosecutors. So before this, I mean, you have prophets before this, but it's at this point in Israel's history that you sort of start to see these prophets that come on the scene and start predicting judgment unless Israel repents. So they're, they're national prophets coming to predict great cosmic or great you know, cataclysmic trouble unless the nation repents. And this is where you see Elijah come on the scene. And Elijah comes on the scene and then he starts sort of a progression. His successor is Elisha. And then you see all these other prophets that start to come and they start to prophesy to the countries that if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't repent of your idolatry, if you don't repent of your uh, wickedness, God is going to bring judgment. So so wicked were these were, was Ahab that God has to sort of Send, start sending prophets now to start warning the people. In fact, Elijah comes on the scene and he is seen as defending God's honor. It's, you kind of almost see this, this battle brewing between God and Baal that, that takes place during this period of Ahab that is, sort of culminates in uh, Mount Carmel where uh, Elijah combats the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and slays like 450 of them after God rains fire down and all that. It's a great story. But, but anyway, and it's interesting too in 1 Kings 21-25, but there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. So it's not that Ahab wasn't evil, but it's like when he married Jezebel, it just sort of prompted him to do even more and more evil. So he was already wicked and then marrying Jezebel pushed him in a in in a more wicked direction so now you can turn back to revelation 2 so just like the jezebel of old the church in thyatira had allowed a woman into their midst who introduced idolatry and immorality into the church just as jezebel had done for the kingdom of israel and moreover this woman calls herself a prophetess Now, we talked about how Ephesus was the church that left its first love. However, one of the things that Ephesus was good at was in discernment. And they were able to discern who the false apostles were and to call them out for it. In fact, Ephesus has said that they cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and are not. Unfortunately, the church in Thyatira did not have that quality. So whereas the church of Thyatira was strong in love... They were very, very lacking in discernment, and they allowed this woman to come in. And this could be a downside to a church that is strong in love as Thyatira was. If that love is not balanced with 
with a, or tempered by a, ho- a healthy dose of discernment, then all sorts of false prophets, all sorts of false teachers can sneak into the church because you're so focused on love, love, love. You're not discerning enough. You're not focusing enough on trying to also maintain truth. There is a balance between love and truth. Right? What do they say of Jesus? It's said of Jesus that he was full of grace and truth. There was, there was, he was perfectly balanced in those two. So now what was the corruption that this woman brought in that earned her the label Jezebel? Well, it said that she taught and seduced the servants of Jesus to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, again, if you recall what we said earlier, Thyatira was the city of guilds. And the city of guilds meant that you had to participate in certain religious festivals and certain religious rituals in order to do business in the city, to be a member of the guilds. In other words, what she did to the church then of Thyatira is that is exactly what Jezebel did to Israel. She introduced sexual immorality into the church. These guilds were all connected with all sorts of false worship and idolatry. So it is believed that this second Jezebel encouraged Christians to participate in the ceremonies and feasts of the trade guilds, even to participate in the sexual sin and eat food sacrificed to idols. So the bottom line here is that Jezebel's doctrine, what she introduced into the church, her doctrine stated that one might please both God and the world and that Christians do not have to be different from, the, from others just, to be, just because of their faith in Jesus Christ. So she was, what she was bringing into the church was an idea that you can sort of call yourself a Christian, but you can still live like the world. You can still do business in the world by following the ways of the world even though you call yourself a Christian. Now, it may seem like, the, like in Thyatira and Pergamos, they had similar problems, and that would be correct. We kind of talked about this a little bit. A little bit. And again, this goes to show how devious Satan's attacks can be against the church. Satan's attacks against the church come in three main ways. The first is through persecution, which we saw in uh, Smyrna, the church was persecuted. Also, the church in Pergamos was all uh, persecuted as well. Persecution is one way that Satan attacks the church, and that's sort of like the frontal assault. Okay, that is coming in through the front door, both barrels blazing, attacking the church, trying to persecute them. And with Smyrna, it was it was persecution. That church persevered, but they were under heavy persecution. With, pers- uh, with Pergamos, it was also persecution. And when that didn't work, then the second thing comes in. They introduce heresy into the church. So if persecution doesn't work, heresy comes in through the church. And then, of course, with Thyatira, if persecution and heresy don't work, then it's moral corruption. And that's what happens with Thyatira. It's the lure of living like the world. So in verses 21 to 23, Jesus now issues the warning to repent. The warning to repent where he says, and I gave her, that is that woman Jezebel, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. 
And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So just like he does in the other letters, Jesus here provides an opportunity for the church to repent. Now, unfortunately for that woman Jezebel, she doesn't repent, uh, even though Jesus gives her the opportunity to. And this is a sad reality that the Bible describes it from time to time, too, and that is namely the hard-heartedness of the unbeliever, the hard-heartedness of the unbeliever. And the fact of the matter is, repentance, as our standards teach, repentance is a gift that God graciously bestows on others through the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, calls repentance an evangelical grace, an evangelical grace or gospel grace. It is something that is given to um, the unbeliever. God graciously grants them repentance so that they will repent of their sins. And Jezebel does not repent. She's given the opportunity to repent, but she does not repent. So Jesus says here, because she did not repent, that he's going to cast her into a sickbed along with those who commit adultery with her. And here we see that unrepentant sin, sin will be met with judgment even in the church. So it's kind of chilling to see Jesus rebuke the church and to promise judgment on those in the church. But it's interesting because I believe it's in 1 Peter 4. I didn't have a chance to look this up. But in 1 Peter 4 it says that judgment is coming and it's coming first to the household of God. So in other words, judgment comes first to the believers. Because as we said before, the churches are mixed, right? The churches, there's no perfect church in the sense that everyone in the, in the church is a perfect believer. There are always weeds and tares to some level or degree in the church. So judgment is coming even in the church. And here, this casting into a sickbed is kind of ironic because if Jezebel is, if this woman Jezebel comes in and she's, introducing sexual sin into the church, it's kind of fitting then that her judgment is on a bed of sickness or a sick bed uh, in a way. So she will be cast into a sick bed. Furthermore, those who followed her in her ways will also suffer great tribulation unless they repent. So her followers are going to be facing some kind of tribulation and they're going to be given a chance to repent as well. So whereas it's too late for Jezebel, her followers at least still have some small chance of repenting before they are also judged. And of course, this idea of children in verse 23, her children, um, most likely doesn't refer to like actual children as in illegitimate children. It's more like children in the sense that these are followers who are closely associated with, with her so that they could, you know, you get this idea of like if you follow somebody so closely, you become identified as their children in a sense. That's what they're saying here. So it's not like actual children of immorality. It's just more like children in the sense that they followed her. And then Jesus announces that in carrying out this judgment on Jezebel and her children, all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts So though this judgment is specifically for the church of Thyatira, it will serve a dual purpose as a warning to all the churches. They all will know that I am the one who searches the minds and hearts with his eyes of flaming fire. So again, 
that, that introduction of Jesus in the beginning as the one who has the eyes of flaming fire is seen here. He discerns this church and he will judge this church. And those then, it will be a warning to all the churches that if they don't repent as well, that they will face a similar fate. And it's interesting because if you think of the story in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, people know that story. So this, the fledgling church is starting to grow and they're starting to take a collection to help with the saints there because you've got a large gathering of people in Jerusalem and they need to support these people. So they take up a collection and people are selling property and giving the money to the church. So Ananias and Sapphira see this way as a, maybe a way of gaining some kind of notoriety with the, with the, you know, the people. So they sell some property, but instead of saying, you know, we're giving all the money to the church, they give part of it. The problem is, in giving part, they lied and said they gave the whole thing to the church. And then Peter says, why has has Satan tempted you to lie to the Holy Spirit? And both of them are, you know, they're dropped dead right on the spot. So you got this judgment over the church. And it's interesting because in Acts 5.11, when this happens, when Ananias and Sapphira are judged for lying to the Holy Spirit, it says that great fear came over the whole church. So here, this judgment on Ananias and Sapphira served as a warning to the whole church that they should also not lie to the Holy Spirit. Same way like in Israel, when Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two older sons, they go to offer fire uh, before the Lord in the tabernacle for the first time, and they decide they're going to go off script from what God has said, and they drop dead. And again, it says, whole, you know, great fear spread throughout the entire congregation because God actually judged somebody for their sin. So this warning then, what he's going to do to this church will serve to all the churches. It'll serve as a warning to all the churches. And then finally in that section there, we see that Jesus will give to each one according to their works. And if you've been here with our, uh, through our study in, on Sunday mornings through the book of Romans, you remember when we looked through Romans chapter 2, that judgment is always on the basis of works. Judgment is always on the basis of works. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, where he says that God will render to each one according to his deeds. And then I think when we looked at that passage, we looked back in Roman, or sorry, Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment when everyone is resurrected and brought before the Lord. What happens? He says they're brought before the Lord and the you know, books are opened. And then he says, then the book of life is open and you're judged by what was in the books. So as you come before God, you're judged by what's in the books that are opened up before God, the great judge. And he's looking, those books are the record of your deeds. And then it says, then he says, anyone whose name is not found in the book of life, that person goes into the lake of fire. So you're you're judged based on your works, but you're given, you know, you're given salvation based on whether or not your name is in the book of life. So the idea is that judgment has always been on the basis of works. And here it says, he will give to each one according to their deeds. Of course, the good news is that for believers in Christ, not only are we covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ by grace through faith, so when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous, but he also graciously decides to over-reward us for the actual works we do. 
So, I mean, our works, even though they're good works, or, like I said, you know, works are, our works are always going to be tainted by some amount of sin. We never do obedience perfectly. You know, the Heidelberg says even the best of us, the most holy of us, makes a small baby steps towards this holiness that is required. But God graciously over-rewards over even our feeble attempts at good works because he is a gracious and righteous God giving us more than we deserve. So now in verses 24 and 25, Jesus moves on then to, the, to give encouragement to the faithful remnant in Thyatira, where he says, Now to you I say, to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have until I come. So the good news, of course, is that all is not lost for Thyatira. There is a faithful remnant in that church. And these are those in that church who do not have the doctrine of Jezebel. They have not bowed the knee to Jezebel. They have not succumbed to her lures, to her temptations. And this is the truth that we see about the church, as we said, in all ages and in every place. There is a mixture in the church. There are wheat and tares in every church. True and false believers. And while many in Thyatira had been lured away by Jezebel, there were some who held fast to the true faith and did not succumb to her temptations. And it is to these faithful that Jesus says to them, I will lay no other burden on you. I am not going to require anything more than what I'm already requiring of you, which is to hold fast what you have until I come. In other words, there's no need to add to what they've already been taught. Just keep doing what you're doing until I return, is what Jesus says. Now he says here, those who do not have this doctrine, who do not know the depths of Satan. And the question, of course, could be asked, what are the depths of Satan? Or the deep things of Satan, depending on which translation you have. There's a little bit of debate about what this means. Uh, what is almost certainly not the case about this is that Jesus or that Jezebel introduces this teaching into the church as the depths of Satan. In other words, she's not coming into the church saying, I bring to you today the deep things of Satan. Who would like to come and learn from me? People are like, what? No, <laughs> Satan, get away from me. No, it's sort of like when Jesus talks in uh, chapter two, verse nine, and what we'll see later in chapter three, verse nine, when he refers to some evil Jewish people as a synagogue of Satan. So it wasn't like these Jewish people had a sign above their synagogue in their town that said, welcome to the synagogue of Satan. It's just that they were so evil that they were sort of being, you know, they were acting as if they were a synagogue of Satan. So here, the teaching of Jezebel is such that even though it's whatever it was called, it, was, it might as well have been called the deep things of Satan. That's the point that is trying to be made here. Now, some think the deep things of Satan was originally passed on as something called the deep things of God. So it's sort of secret or hidden knowledge of God. If anybody has heard of the term Gnostics or the Gnosticism, basically it's a false teaching that, well, it's sort of like Jello, trying to nail Jello to the wall. Okay, It's kind of hard to really define what Gnosticism is because it's kind of an amorphous blob. But basically, they taught some kind of higher level of knowledge that you had to be... You had to have certain 
know certain things and you had to have these secret you know, decoder ring or whatever in order to join the club kind of a thing. That's what some people think. Others, and I think I kind of land on this idea here, is that the deep things of Satan was a belief that in order to appreciate fully the grace of God, one must first plumb the depths of evil. That would kind of make sense based on what Jezebel's false doctrine was, that she was luring people into sexual immorality, luring people into eating meat offered to sac- uh, meat sacrificed to idols, engaging in these religious, false religious uh, feasts and festivals. So basically, the deep things of Satan is, in order to fully appreciate the, the, the things of God, you need to experience how wicked things are. And then you can fully appreciate, it's like, you don't know how good good is until you know how bad evil is. So, you know, let's, let's, let's take part of the evil thing so you can know how good God is. And then the passage concludes in verses 26 and 29 as he gives the promise to the overcomer. And he says, and to he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, one thing to note here, and it's a minor thing, but that phrase, he who has an ear, which you see in all the letters, normally it starts the section that gives the promise. So as he's closing the letter, Jesus will say, he who has an ear, let him hear what... Uh, the Lord says to the seven churches, and then he says to the overcomer, I will give this, that, and the other thing. Starting here in this letter and then going on for the other letters, it comes at the end of the letter. So I'm not sure why. That's just kind of what happens here. So this, this phrase, he who has an ear, has moved from the beginning to the end of the final promise. And it stays that way for the rest of the letters. Just a minor point. But here, the promise to the overcomer and to the conqueror, Jesus promises two things. First, he promises that you, uh, the, the first promise is to rule with Christ over the nations. So he will rule with them. The, the, you know, I will give the power over the nations and he shall rule them, the overcomer, with a rod of iron. And as we said earlier, this is a quotation from Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. Again, where uh, the psalmist says, Ask of me and I will give to you, that is to the Son, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So when Christ returns at the end of the age, believers will rule with him in the eternal kingdom. And this is a a blessing and a privilege that Jesus grants to the church. There are many scriptures that talk about how the church will rule with Christ in the end times, in the, in the final, uh, in the eternal state. And it will be decisive rule as Jesus and our enemies are, as Jesus dashes our enemies to pieces here. It says they will be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. It kind of reminds you of that image when Jesus comes in Re- Revelation chapter 19 on the great white, you know, he comes in the white horse and all the armies are arrayed against him, and Jesus comes and he opens his mouth, and that sword we talked about comes out and it just smites all of the enemies to pieces. It's a very one-sided battle. 
Now, there's a subtle difference here in what Jesus says and what we read in Psalm 2. Because in Psalm 2, 9, it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron. But in Revelation 2, 27, Jesus says, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And that word rule in uh, verse 27 is actually the word shepherd. So in other words, the, the overcomer will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. And the promise then is that Christ will grant to his faithful people the ability to faithfully shepherd his flock using the rod to protect them from those who would do them harm. So that is the first promise. The first promise is that they will rule with Christ over the nations. The second one is that the overcomer will be given the morning star, the morning star, which is really Jesus himself. Jesus is the bright and morning star. Again, going back to Balaam, which is interesting. uh, One of the oracles Balaam gives in Numbers chapter 24 is he makes a prophecy actually about Christ. In Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam in his oracle says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. So Balaam, the false prophet, (laughs) you know, which is interesting. So even God can speak out of the mouth of a false prophet. I mean, heck, God spoke out of the mouth of a donkey. Why not the mouth of a false prophet? But he speaks out of the mouth of a false prophet. And this false prophet predicts the coming of Christ, the star, the star that comes out of Jacob, that has a scepter in his hand. And then later on at the end of Revelation, in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus himself refers to himself as the bright and morning star. So Jesus is the bright morning star who shines in the night right before the dawn. That's what the morning star is. It's the morning star comes right before the sun comes. So Jesus here is the one who shines in the night right before the dawn, giving light and life to his faithful overcomers, to those who keep his works until the end. And that is the letter to the church in Thyatira. Next time in two weeks on the 20th, We're going to look at the fifth letter, which is to the church in Sardis, the dead church.